Welcome back to the Geared Ashley Mullet Show. This is Geared Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 169 of season 3, 234 of the Geared Ashley Mullet Show podcast. Today is Friday. Thank God for that fact. It is also, more specifically, October 22nd, 2021. Today I'd like to talk about vaccine mandates and freedom and prioritization. But before we get into that, I just recently finished all of the audiobooks in my queue, and I had some long ones in there for quite some time, for months. And every now and then, I don't know, every maybe nine months to a year or so, I like to try to clear everything out rather than replacing a book in my queue and maintaining seven at all times like I usually do. I'll just try and get through every one of them. Just, hey, this list is getting a little stale. It's been a while since I had a fresh list. I'm just going to chunk, 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 get these picked off one after another, and then I'll start fresh. And what's nice about starting fresh with a whole new set is that you get to think about the possible connections. You know, do I want this to be more balanced where I've got one fiction and I've got one nonfiction that's historical and I've got one nonfiction that is kind of psychology oriented and one that's political oriented and one that's business oriented? I mean, do I want to have one that's theology or do I want to have, like my current cue right now is, do I want to have a heavy emphasis in one particular direction and see what connections pop up when I'm reading several books in a category or in a genre all at the same time? Do I do the connecting of the dots thing in a different way when I'm listening to this book and then this one and then this one and then this one? So just recently with having finished all of the books in my queue. These are the titles that I added. Uh, For one, I added a novel called China by Edward Rutherford. And I've never heard of this guy. Apparently he's got several historical fiction novels about various places. He's got one on London, one on Paris, one on China, obviously, a few other places. But it's a long one, and I just finished James Clavell's Asian Saga, and I think part of me was hungry for more, uh, you know, historical fiction in that vein, hoping that you know even if this book by Rutherford is not quite uh, as good as Clavell's series, yeah, you know, maybe I'll appreciate Clavell's series in a way that I hadn't after I read this, or maybe certain things I'll like about this because Clavel wasn't very good at those, or, or what have you. But in any event, China is a covering of basically the same period in Chinese history, from the Opium Wars with the British trading and pulling shenanigans and the emperor of China not wanting this opium trade because it was eroding the morals and the public health of his people on up into the eventual overthrow 
of the Chinese emperor and the institution of communism under Mao Zedong. And supposedly, this novel's going to take us on up to the present, which should be, again, really interesting. It's about 30 hours long, which is fine. I mean, that's compared to some books that I read, 40, 50 hours, 30 hours is not so bad. And if it's a good read, which so far it's been pretty engaging, I haven't minded it at all, uh, those 30 hours will fly by before I know it. Next in my queue, my refreshed queue, no pun intended since we were just talking about China, uh, Paris 1919 by Margaret Macmillan. And this is a treatment of the Treaty of Versailles. The subtitle is Six Months That Changed the World. The summary on goodreads.com reads, Without question, Margaret Macmillan's Paris 1919 is the most honest and engaging history ever written about those fateful months after World War I when the maps of Europe were redrawn, brimming with lucid analysis, elegant character sketches, and geopolitical pathos. It is essential reading. Between January and July 1919, after the war to end all wars, quote, unquote, men and women around the world converged on Paris to shape the peace. Center stage for the first time in history was an American president, Woodrow Wilson, who, with his 14 points, seemed to promise to so many people the fulfillment of their dreams. Stern, intransigent, impatient when it came to security concerns, and wildly idealistic in his dream of a League of Nations that would resolve all future conflict peacefully, Wilson is only one of the larger-than-life characters who fill the pages of this extraordinary book. David Lloyd George, the gregarious and wily British Prime Minister, brought Winston Churchill and John Maynard Keynes. Lawrence of Arabia joined the Arab delegation. Ho Chi Minh, a kitchen assistant at the Ritz, submitted a petition for an independent Vietnam. For six months, Paris was effectively the center of the world as the peacemakers carved up bankrupt empires and created new countries. This book brings to life the personalities, ideas, and prejudices of the men who shaped the settlement. They pushed Russia to the sidelines, alienated China, and dismissed the Arabs. They struggled with the problems of Kosovo, of the Kurds, and of a homeland for the Jews. The peacemakers, so it has been said, failed dismally. Above all, they failed to prevent another war. Margaret Macmillan argues that they have unfairly been made the scapegoats for the mistakes of those who came later. She refutes received ideas about the path from Versailles to World War II and debunks the widely accepted notion that reparations imposed on the Germans were in large part responsible for the Second World War. A landmark work of narrative history, Paris 1919, is the first full-scale treatment of the peace conference in more than 25 years. So, there's the summary. I'm interested to hear why she thinks the Treaty of Versailles did not, in large part, lead to World War II. I can't imagine how she's going to make that case, but there we have it. That's part of why you read a book. Next on my cue, dealing with World War II, The First Wave by Alex Kershaw. Subtitle for this one, 
is the D-Day warriors who led the way to victory in World War II. And the summary for this one, I'll read less of. Beginning in the pre-dawn darkness of June 6, 1944, the first wave follows the remarkable men who carried out D-Day's most perilous missions. The charismatic, unforgettable cast includes the first American paratrooper to touch down on Normandy soil, the glider pilot who braved anti-aircraft fire to crash land mere yards from the vital Pegasus Bridge, the brothers who led their troops onto Juneau Beach under withering fire, as well as a French commando returning to his native land who fought to destroy German strongholds on Sword Beach and beyond. Readers will experience the sheer grit of the rangers who scaled Pointe du Hoc and the astonishing courage of the airborne soldiers who captured the Merville gun battery in the face of devastating enemy counterattacks. The first to fight when the stakes were highest and the odds longest, these men would determine the fate of the invasion of Hitler's fortress Europe and the very history of the 20th century. So far, this one I'm really enjoying. This one, it feels a bit like Band of Brothers, maybe because Band of Brothers is what I'm familiar with as far as a treatment of this kind of intimate portrait of what the individual American soldier was thinking and experiencing on good days in between fights. What was the life lived between engagements, not just the battles themselves, but who were these men? That's the kind of book that this is. It's character sketch after character sketch and these little anecdotes that help you to think of these as people, not just dates and names, but people, because they were people, just like we're people. I'm enjoying it. It's a good one. Next in my list is O Jerusalem by Larry Collins and Dominique Lapierre. This one was recommended to me by my cousin Micah. We were talking about issues pertaining to Israel, the nation of Israel. I don't even remember why precisely, but it's a bit of a long one. Again, the audible version is 23 hours. Paris 1919 is 24 and three quarters left. It's more than that, but I've listened to a little bit. But O Jerusalem is... A story of the birth of the state of Israel. And it's early. I haven't listened to very much of it, just the first hour or so. But he's bouncing back and forth between the Jewish side of the story, the Arab side of the story, the British side of the story, getting it from all angles. I'm a little bit on guard because some of the editorializing would seem to undercut the legitimacy of the Jewish claim on Palestine, on Israel, as we know it now. And personally, I find that tired. But so far, I'm not getting a lot of redundancy. It doesn't feel like he's just taking whole cloth statements and assertions from other people. And I'm getting details that I haven't heard before as far as individual players, or I don't remember having heard before. I didn't notice them before. So far, I am enjoying this one. 
The Goodreads summary reads as follows. This book recounts moment by moment the process that gave birth to the state of Israel. Collins and LaPierre weave a tapestry of shattered hopes, valor, and fierce pride as the Arabs, Jews, and British collide in their fight for control of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem meticulously recreates this historic struggle. It penetrates the battle from the inside, exploring each party's interests, intentions, and concessions as the city of their dreams teeters on the brink of destruction. From the Jewish fighters and their heroic commanders to the Arab chieftain whose death in battle doomed his cause, along with the Mufti of Jerusalem's support for Hitler and the extermination of the Jews, but inspired a generation of Palestinians. O Jerusalem tells the three-dimensional story of this high-stakes emotional conflict. It's interesting to me with this one, as I was saying before, as far as rationales to listen to several books at the same time, what strategically am I trying to accomplish or understand or figure out or put together here. But it is interesting to read this one along with the first wave and to think of the D-Day invasion in terms of paving the way for the foundation of the modern state of Israel, for instance. To see Paris 1919 as paving the way, regardless what Margaret Macmillan is going to claim, I think this is my position, the Treaty of Versailles did lead, to a great extent, in great measure, to World War II. The peace was not a, an enduring peace. It wasn't a peace that could endure, in essence. But it's interesting to think of Paris 1919 leading into the first wave leading into O Jerusalem. Next in the queue is a book by Shoshana Zuboff. Title of this book is The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. In this masterwork of original thinking and research, Shoshana Zuboff provides startling insights into the phenomenon that she has named surveillance capitalism. The stakes could not be higher. A global architecture of behavior modification threatens human nature in the 21st century, just as industrial capitalism disfigured the natural world in the 20th. Zuboff vividly brings to life the consequences as surveillance capitalism advances from Silicon Valley into every economic sector. Vast wealth and power are accumulated in ominous new behavioral futures markets where predictions about our behavior are bought and sold, and the production of goods and services is subordinated to a new means of behavioral modification. The threat has shifted from a totalitarian Big Brother state to an ubiquitous digital architecture, a big other operating in the interests of surveillance capital. Here is the crucible of an unprecedented form of power marked by extreme concentrations of knowledge and free from democratic oversight. Zubov's comprehensive and moving analysis lays bare the threats to 21st century society, a controlled hive of total connection that seduces with promises of total certainty for maximum profit at the expense of democracy, freedom, and our human future. With little resistance from law or society, surveillance capitalism is on the verge of dominating the social order and shaping the digital future if we let it. Shoshana Zuboff is the Charles Edward Wilson Professor Emerita, Harvard Business School. That's a mouthful. 
She received her PhD from Harvard and her BA from the University of Chicago. Shoshana. What kind of a name is Shoshana? Kind of an odd one. Anyway, this is a book which is too real. It feels like the opposite of escapism, where the book on China is removed. feels like it's another planet almost, another time, another place. Paris 1919, 102 years ago. The first wave is still 80 years ago, thereabouts, 70 plus years. Oh, Jerusalem, again, 80 years, thereabouts. But the age of surveillance capitalism is very much right here, right now. This is the world we live in. This is what we're dealing with. And especially, I think, read in tandem with this novel about the turmoil in China as the last Chinese emperor is overthrown, as communism takes over. Then you get the Treaty of Versailles, which is the wrap-up to one world war, but it's not actually going to make that the war to end all wars, not that it could, human nature being such as it is. All of the rosy predictions that these big tech giant executives and middle managers and frontline activists have for the way that they're going to fix the problems of the world. All of those rosy predictions and that self-confidence and that unbridled optimism reminds me of a century ago. It reminds me that a century is really not that long in historical terms. That alive idea is animating these big tech giants that we can make everything better through technology. We can solve all the world's problems through technology. Yes, they want to make money, absolutely, but they're telling themselves as they make unscrupulous decisions to make money, they're telling themselves that the ends justify the means. If you have to break a few eggs or a whole lot of eggs to make a big omelet, an omelet the size of the world, so be it. And that's the trouble with the scope of what they have in view. And I've been wrestling here lately with my own finitude, being finite, being limited. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, eternal, holy, in unlimited degree. And you and I are not unlimited in any respect. We are limited in every respect. And of course, technology is there for all of human history to try and expand our capabilities. But the trouble is, with the nature and the scope of what is being attempted with, as she puts it, surveillance capitalism, big tech, big social media giants, big internet companies tracking your every move online, everything you say, everything 
you read, everything you search, everything you look at, everything you think about and feel. The ambition is nothing less than omniscience. And because knowledge is power, the ambition is to be all-powerful. All this knowledge is to the end of being all-powerful. And just like we are empowering ourselves when we have access to information and knowledge about the world around us, so also the folks at the top of this movement, these organizations, the organizations that oversee these organizations, the folks at the top are getting a lot of power over us as they find out the kinds of things that we want to find out. It's a sobering thought. And it's, I think, all the more sobering when you realize that the next war, just like there was a World War I that had to be concluded with the Treaty of Versailles, or it didn't have to be true. Didn't have to be the Treaty of Versailles. Could have been a better treaty that was more equitable, more just, more enduring, more likely to succeed and secure the peace. But I digress. Just like there was a World War One and a World War Two, you can bet that there will be a World War Three. We just don't know exactly when. We know who the players probably are, and actually the headline I was surprised to see on my phone last night, notification came through on my banner on my phone that President Biden said that America has a duty and is committed to defending Taiwan from an invasion by China. China has made known they will be taking Taiwan. It's just a question of when. And exactly how. And quite frankly, my expectation has been that America is just going to let them. Look at what we did with Afghanistan. We just gave it up. All that investment, all those people, all of our own people that we left in country. American citizens, American men, women, and children left in country. The humiliation. And now we're going to stand up to China Really? Really? Over Taiwan? Okay. But President Biden says we will. I hope he remembers that this morning, having said it last night, or I hope his handlers remember that he said that last night and they intended for him to say that, and they're going to stick by that. Hopefully his wife is all on board with sticking to that so she can remind him in any event. The last book I've added to my queue is a book by Dan Jones called The Templars, The Rise and Spectacular Fall of God's Holy Warriors. A faltering war in the Middle East, a band of elite warriors determined to fight to the death to protect Christianity's holiest sites. A global financial network unaccountable to any government. What does that remind you of? A sinister plot founded on a web of lies. Jerusalem, 1119, so 902 years ago. A small group of knights seeking a purpose in the violent aftermath of the First Crusade decides to set up a new order. These are the first Knights Templar, a band of elite warriors prepared to give their lives 
to protect Christian pilgrims to the Holy Land. Over the next 200 years, the Templars would become the most powerful religious order of the medieval world. Their legend has inspired fervent speculation ever since. In this groundbreaking narrative history, Dan Jones tells the true story of the Templars for the first time in a generation, drawing on extensive original sources to build a gripping account of these Christian holy warriors whose heroism and alleged depravity have been shrouded in myth. The Templars were protected by the Pope and sworn to strict vows of celibacy. They fought the forces of Islam in hand-to-hand combat on the sun-baked hills where Jesus lived and died, finding their nemesis in Saladin, who vowed to drive all Christians from the lands of Islam. Experts at channeling money across borders, they established the medieval world's largest and most innovative banking network and waged private wars against anyone who threatened their interests. Then, as they faced setbacks at the hands of the ruthless Mamluk Sultan Baibars and were forced to retreat to their stronghold in Cyprus, a vindictive and cash-strapped king of France set his sights on their fortune. His administrators quietly mounted a damning case against the Templars built on deliberate lies and false testimony. Then, on Friday, October 13, 1307, hundreds of brothers were arrested, imprisoned, and tortured, and the order was disbanded amid lurid accusations of sexual misconduct and heresy. They were tried by the Pope in secret proceedings, and their last master was brutally tortured and burned at the stake. But were they heretics or victims of a ruthlessly repressive state? Dan Jones goes back to the sources to bring their dramatic tale so relevant to our own times in a book that is at once authoritative and compulsively readable. This one, this book on the Templars, I'm actually very interested in, in part because there's been some speculation on my dad's side of the family as to whether we might be related to the last Grandmaster of the Knights Templar. Maybe. Are we maybe related to him somehow, some way? It's an interesting thought. Jacques de Molay was his name, circa 1240, 1250, somewhere in there, when he was born, died March 18th, 1314, 23rd and last Grandmaster of the Knights Templar, leading the order from 20th April, 1292, until it was dissolved by order of Pope Clement V in 1312, his name being Molay. Sounds very similar to the alternate spelling, M-O-L-L-E-T, Molay, which gets anglicized as my ancestors come to America from Switzerland. And now we spell it M-U-L-L-E-T, Mullet. But whether there's a connection or not, it is interesting. It's funny how you read a book differently when you start to identify with the characters. So on the off chance, even though I don't think it's likely, on the off chance that there would be some connection between my ancestors, about whom I can find precious little past three or 400 years ago. I can find names, but that's about it. The idea that there might be some off chance that some 
child of, family of Jacques de Molay, fled France after his arrest, took refuge in Switzerland, where over the next few hundred years, they set themselves up. You know, actually, funny thing, try this on for size. Menno Simons was born 1496, died 1561. Roman Catholic priest from Friesland, region of the Low Countries, became an influential Anabaptist. He is the founder of what's known as Mennonitism. My ancestors, as far back as I can trace, were Mennonites on my dad's side. But it's interesting to me, I think to myself, well, 1400s, late 1400s, you know, early 1500s, like that's a long time ago. And the Knights Templar, that's even longer ago, right? Like that's a long, long time ago. But actually, Jacques de Molay dies March 11th or 18th. It looks like Wikipedia is not sure one way or the other. He might have died on the 11th. He might have died on the 18th. I don't know. But he dies 1314 at the age of 70. 1314, well, that's a long, long time before 1561, right? Actually, it's not. It's not terribly, terribly long. A hundred and fifty years, thereabouts, is not that terribly long. But alas, I digress. On the off chance that there would be any connection whatsoever between Jacques de Molay, last grandmaster of the Knights Templar, and my family, the Mullets, Mullets, Molay, from Switzerland, I find the whole topic of the Templars interesting. I find the whole topic of the Crusades in general interesting. And so there's a connection here with the Templars, them being this kind of behind-the-scenes mercenary financial organization, warriors. You know, there's a connection there where you could do a little bit of compare and contrast between the Templars and these young men who are part of the D-Day invasion of Europe, young Americans, British, Aussies, what changed and what stayed the same between the 14th century when the Templars were wrapped up and the 20th century. Or look at this global financial network. These guys are really good at getting money across borders and they're really influential. They're power brokers, not just able to move money around, but they're able to serve as go-betweens, and that's what makes them so powerful. That's also what makes them such a threat and such a ripe target for a king. And let's do a little bit of connecting dots with surveillance capitalism. These big tech giants that have so much power and so much ability to bless or damn, and they're so good at moving information and money around at a certain point, it's likely they get plundered, similar to the Templars. I don't think it'll be so soon. I really don't. I think they make more sense to be an ally 
of whoever it is that's going to want the power that they have. But with everything being on an accelerated timetable, time frame in our day compared with previous centuries, millennia, just by virtue of technology speeding things up, I would bet you it is a matter of years or even decades at most, not centuries, before the chickens come home to roost and you have some opportunistic ruler, monarch, who plunders the coffers, who hijacks what it is that Facebook, Google, Alphabet, Microsoft, Apple have wrought. What it is that they have built up will be a turnkey for somebody to hijack. But then two, the Templars, they're engaged obviously in the Holy Land, in Jerusalem, in the Middle East. So there's a connection there with, oh, Jerusalem, right? Lots of connections here. I'm looking forward to getting through each of these books over the next while. Actually, there was, and I'll I'll correct myself. I said at the top, I'd cleaned out my queue entirely. There's one book that is still with me. It's The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. We've got uh, chapter, two chapters, I think, left. I'm going to try and read one of those chapters this morning. Uh, reading through that with my friend and pastor, Paul Pavlik. But that's the last one in my audio book queue. After having recently finished everything in my former queue and then starting fresh. But... Check out some of those books. Let me know what you think. If you've got some recommendations for future books I should listen to. I've got so many recommendations piled up. I can't guarantee I'm going to listen to your recommendation real, real soon. But I like to get recommendations and throw them in the wish list on Audible. And then when I'm feeling stumped and I'm just not sure what else to go with next when I finish a book, I'll scroll through that wish list and if it strikes my fancy or if it seems like it would be a good fit with what else I'm reading strategically, then I'll throw it in. So send me some recommendations if you would. Hopefully one of these books I just mentioned is interesting to you. I got to run though. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.